This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, we're going to have a really interesting show kicking off the first half. We're going to be talking politics with one one of our favorite political strategists, Greg Valliere. But I first wanted to check in with with you on thoughts from the debate, thoughts on the markets. How are we going into the home stretch here? Yeah. Well, certainly I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to Greg and get his uh, opinion on this. Um, my uh, my obviously, I thought it was a much stronger debate for Trump. I, I couldn't have been much weaker than the first one. So. Um, that's not a, a, a high uh, bar. I, I actually thought Biden looked pretty weak. Um, you know, he was stuttering. He was confused on some of his words. Does that make any difference? Probably not um, this late in the game with so many people having already voted or already decided um, the uh, the political odds on Predicted.com changed very little, maybe one penny towards Trump um, after the uh, debate, at, you know, at most, not much more. Um, I mean, the debate picture uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, the, the, the electoral pic- picture here uh, is that he has to get one of the three northern states that he all picked up last time, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Of of those, it is deemed, and probably correctly so, most likely that if he has a chance, it's Pennsylvania. In the betting markets, I see Pennsylvania blue at 65%. So that's not quite two to one. Um, and, uh, you know, well, two to one is, is two to one. If he doesn't get Pennsylvania, then... Uh, and, and by the way, that also means he needs to get the others. But if it's if he's going to get Pennsylvania, I assume he's going to get North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. Um, and that's what he needs. So that that really is the state, uh, the the the, uh, the likely pivotal state, and it's still definitely against odds, but not at all Im- impossible. Um, if we go to the Senate map, which is which is really interesting. It, it, it's been my position that the stock market could very would tolerate would well. Their first choice would be actually a Biden presidency with a Republican Senate. Um, I even think that would might be their choice over Trump and and a Republican Senate by not a, a huge margin, but but certainly a, 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 some margin. So what are the possibilities are of that happening? Um, again, on the odds, it's, it looks democratic. There, there are two really, uh, you know, close elections. Um, you know, one is the Iowa election. Um, and I, I certainly want to talk to Greg about that. I, guess, I think that's the, uh, am I right, the Ernst versus the, the Greenfield election. And the other is the North Carolina election. Uh, which is the Cunning Tillis Cunningham election? They were they're going to be very very close. I mean, um, uh, um, if if the Republicans could take those two, they've got to also hold Montana, which is close, and they've got to also hold the Georgia special election. Which, by the way, 
the political odds markets only give the Republicans 57 percent, which is, you know, pretty close to a toss up there. So, you know, he's got to hold his other ground and take Iowa and take North Carolina to get 51, assuming a Biden presidency. So um, and that's still a tall order, but um, not certainly not outside uh, the realm of possibility. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in, we, we, we certainly going to talk more about that, uh, I, I think, uh, 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 you know, with, with Greg. On the economic front, of course, back and forth on stimulus. Um, yeah, uh, you know, first of all, if if Trump and Pelosi make a deal, it'll pass. Uh, I, you know, the stuff about McConnell and everything like that are kind of silly. I mean, all he needs is two votes, two or three Republicans. I, I don't know. Greg might challenge me on that. But if they say, you know, we got we got the deal, um, he's going to get a few Republicans, and that's all he really needs. Um, by the way, he was right on that on the debate last night, I thought. Um, he was actually right on a, quite a number of, uh, of some of the things that he said. Um, uh, so, you know, but, you know, otherwise than that, I, you, know, it, it, you know, will it be during the rump session or will it be after the election or will it be in January? If it's in January, it'll come in January. Can the economy survive, you know, three months until that happens? Yeah, it can. Um um, and who knows, there might be some interim measure. Yeah, it, it will be a slower recovery in the fourth quarter than it would have been otherwise, but, but uh, not something that, uh, you know, would, I, you know, cause a double-dip recession or any, anything of, of, of that nature. Um, on the earnings front, very good. So far, 81, a quarter of the S&P has reported, I think the last statistic is 81% have beat estimates which is quite a high percentage, um, and the beats have been really high, uh, but you are really punished if you miss. You know, Intel and, 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 and some of the others, that, that if, if, you, if you're not there, you're going to be punished. If, you're, if you beat, uh, you know, it's been like you, you may get 1%. If you miss, uh, you're down 5 to 10. <laughs> but that's high expectations. It means, just means the market's smarter than a lot of the estimates that are coming out over there. That's not expected. The market is generally, just as we've been talking about for the last several months, with election uncertainty, it's you know, really hard to know. It's hard to see any catalyst for a big gain. Now, if we come to an agreement, and it is, that will give a pop to the market, but my feeling is that pop would fade quickly with the election uncertainty uh, facing the market in 10 days. So, you know, we will get a pop if that if we get that announcement. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's a big beginning of a big surge. A big surge, well, a surge could happen, a relief rally if we get a clear presidency uh, at, you know, from the election. Um, in a, a Biden, if Biden wins with a moderate Senate that's uh, just very close, or a GOP, I think you're going to get a relief rally uh, in uh, the equity markets. I want to bring in Greg real quick, but I just want to touch on one final question before we do that. The um, you know rates have started picking up. They got above yeah. eighty basis points on the ten year. Is this yeah, just the fiscal package? Yeah, inflation? No, you know we've been predicting this all along. <laughs> uh, you know back uh, back in May, I called the end of the forty year bull market in bonds, and I strongly believe it. Yeah, well, part of that is you know I mean a Biden presidency, more spending, and and and, and a sweep. Uh, and and part of it is you know you know basically the economic data has been very good. Yeah, the viruses are up. Deaths are still moderate. Uh, most people get on with their lives, and uh, you know, unless there's a surge that brings deaths really higher, and with vaccine promises, uh, you know, um, and and therapeutics, um, you know, on the horizon, uh, you know that, you know, you know, you know, I think the smart money knows that that's it's 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 going to happen. I mean, there is a, a surge risk with a death risk where people that are going in, even those that are going in the hospital, the chances of dying is just way, way down. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, I thought Trump looked really healthy yesterday and he had a hospital bout of COVID. So, you know, um, 
uh, with risk factors in his, uh, you know, against him. I mean, I, you know, all those people who say, oh, he's out, he's going to, you can't campaign and all that. I said, no, not, not with the Regeneron cocktail. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a powerful uh, one. And, and, and the Remdesivir, which we know, I think it was yesterday, got FDA approval. I mean, this is, this is just the beginning of a number of drugs that are, you know, moving forward on, on, on that score. Well, let's bring in Greg Valier, who's Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments, a return guest to Behind the Markets. Greg, thanks for joining us. Greetings, gentlemen. Uh, Greg, did you hear what I had said? Are you in agreement, or where do you disagree? Well, a couple of things. I I think that if you read, take a look at this morning's Washington Post. They have a long story about how deeply disturbed the Republicans in Congress are over Mnuchin. They feel Mnuchin's given away too much to Pelosi. Uh, They think the deficit implications are appalling. So I do think that even if there is a Pelosi-Mnuchin deal, it may not make it through Congress. McConnell may come up with impediments. Uh, I certainly don't think it's going to make it before the election, and maybe in the lame duck, but if you you want my bet, I think it may not be... uh, done until after the inauguration. So you don't think he could peel away three, what is it, what do we need, you know, three Republicans um, to say I want it, that are up for running right now? Uh, I think some would, I, I, I don't even know if it would get to that point. I think there could be a filibuster against it. That would make it a lot tougher to get it through. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I thought at one point, and Greg, you know this better than I, that McConnell said, I'll, you know, I, he could say, I put up for a vote, uh, you know, vote your conscience, he's not going to endorse it. I, did, uh, uh, did, did he, did he say something like that or, 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 or not? He, he, he did. But the thing yeah. is, once he gets the Supreme Court justice, uh, or sworn in um, probably on Monday. I think all the Republicans are going to leave town. I think it's going to be hard to get them to come back for a quorum. Um, So, no, I I think McConnell will put up some obstacles uh, against this. I think there are many parts of this bill that the Republicans almost in, in entirety feel are unacceptable. Yeah, no, I know most do feel it's unacceptable. I, I do know that. I just wondered if you could peel away. What did you think about my assessment on the debate, the election? I agreed. Oh, I agreed on the debate fully. I thought it was a disappointing performance by Biden. Uh, he didn't seem to have energy. He seemed confused. Yeah. He needed he needed more makeup. But most importantly, he made a gaffe, and that's what Trump's been looking for, a Biden gaffe, and that, of course, was on uh, phasing out oil. Yeah. And th- that was a real faux pas by Biden. You know, it, it won't hurt in the Democrats in Texas or Oklahoma, because then they weren't going to win Texas or Oklahoma, but it will hurt in Pennsylvania. Um, um, do you think the political odds, which are, you know, let's say two to one, you think that that's a, a good assessment at this point? I wouldn't. I look at the real clear politics numbers and the the, the betting site numbers, yep. and I, I think it's a little closer. I think uh, Trump comes out of this debate with a bit of momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he narrows the gap. I think it goes from eight or nine down to four, five, or six. I don't know if he's going to be able to get it below four, but I think it'll get close. And you know, Jeremy, if we get it to four, three of those four points is just California, and that means if it's and New York. In New York, maybe Massachusetts. So you're at a point where if it's down to just four points, this could be really tight in those key states. And then you get a scenario the markets, I think, don't like, and that is a disputed election. Mm -hmm. Because if it's that close, Trump's going to say, well, it was the mail-in ballots. They're fraudulent. This is rigged against me. And Trump is so litigious, he'll go to William Barr and say, I want you to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. And we sort of saw this movie before in the year 2000, and it took until December 12th for the Supreme Court to rule that George W. Bush beat Al Gore. So this this could drag on for a while. Yeah, yeah, I I I I I, I agree. Uh, let, let's. Uh, I'm going to go back to that disputed election thing. I'm going to go to the Senate, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, there's a couple of close ones that hold in the balance there. 
What's your assessment of North Carolina and Iowa um, um, and, um, and, and, and what say the Georgia special or the Montana um, and, and what you think the probability that uh, the GOP might be able to hold on to the Senate? I think it's still possible. I'm in a minority. Uh, I think, though, that there are some seats the Republicans will barely hold on to. I think they'll lose Susan Collins' seat in Maine. Yeah. Yeah. They'll lose uh, Gar- uh, Gardner's seat in Colorado, and they'll lose okay. McSally's seat in Arizona. Yeah. But beyond that, the Republicans could hang in there, including North Carolina, and uh, the Democrats will lose at least one of their seats in Alabama, and they're not in great shape in Michigan either. But there's a bigger point. Let's say it winds up a tie, which the Democrats would break. Or let's say it winds up the Democrats having a net gain uh, in the Senate of one and becomes 51-49. That may not be enough because there are still a couple of very moderate Democrats who might not go along with an activist agenda. I refer to the West Virginia Senator Manchin and uh, Tester in Montana. They're two conservative Democrats. So for the Democrats to really get their way, they would, I think, need to have the Senate up to 52-48, maybe even 53-47 in their favor. And I don't see those numbers happening. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. That's what I said. A a, a very narrow tie or 51, there's going to be no radical agenda. I think think there are going to be a tax hike, but it will be a much... uh, cut down one from i think some of the extremes that that biden has if it does come that close uh, i hope you're right uh and i think that biden would be counseled by his many friends on wall street that a, a a tax hike right away might not make sense the economy could still be fragile uh, and he may make the tax hikes come later rather than That's sooner. I think, I but, think 2022, yep, I would make this effective tw- Past 2021, effective 2022. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's likely. But I would say this. The greatest political challenge to Biden will come from his left. It'll be the progressives. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is making noise that she wants to challenge Schumer for Schumer's Senate mm-hmm. seat in New York. So she's going to want to get her name in the paper every day. And I I do think that the left is going to push Biden aggressively on things like a minimum corporate tax. I think that's something the left wants to see fairly quickly. They point out that Amazon... the Biden tax plan. Wasn't there some sort of that he he wanted to say, I want everyone to pay some tax or, you know... Yeah, and you, you, the, the progressives point out that Amazon a couple of years ago made like $11 billion and got a refund. They didn't pay any tax. Yeah. So I think you're going to see something move on a minimum tax. But, you know, individual taxes I, I, and maybe the basic business tax, I think that all comes later rather than sooner. Mm-hmm. Let me just so reintroduce some, our... of the, some of the things might be enacted, but uh, other things. Are... Let's, let's talk about... Um, the power of, of, of the political left in, um, in the potential new Congress. Uh, if, if, if our estimates that the Senate is, uh, uh, you know, could stay Republican or is going to be very close, how can anything from the, the, the extreme left ever get passed? Yeah, I think that's right. I think Biden would resist it, yeah. like he's going to resist packing the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things that I think he would he would be a moderate on. And frankly, I don't think he or Kamala Harris favor breaking up the tech companies. I mean, Harris is very close to Silicon yes. Valley. They've funded her c- campaigns. She knows a lot of the players there. And I think that they'll be moderate on things yeah. like the tech sector. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I agree with you on I agree with you on that. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we, but, but if it's 55-45 on the Dem side, um, then they can be more aggressive because yep. you can lose some of those moderate uh, Democrats and still gain what you need to gain. Uh, I'm still, it would take a, a, a big, big Democrat majority to get the abolition of the filibuster rule. I, I, I think you'd need at least 54, 55 Democrats, because there are some moderates like Manchin who are cool to it. Frankly, I even think Biden is cool to uh, changing the mm. filibuster rule. Yeah, I mean, abolishing it for everything, in other words, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, based, uh, on the Supreme Court, I've maintained 
and I agree with you that there's and and I think there's several several Democrats have said there's no reason to even think about packing the court until the court rules mm-hmm. <laughs> in certain things that are going to be widely unpopular uh, to the Democrats. I mean, if we take a look at history on on Roosevelt, it was basically negating his whole Reconstruction plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the New Deal, and, uh, you know, one right after the other. And then he said, well, uh, you know, I can, I, I, I need to pack it. Uh, you know, I mean, none of, you know, people are going to ask, well, why, what, what has the Supreme Court done that shows something you need to pack it? It's all perspective. It's not uh, retrospective. Well, that's right. There's still a lot of resentment among Democrats over the way Merrick Garland was treated. Yeah, and they, they, you know, they're still angry over that, and that anger will be apparent on Monday when uh, Amy Barrett gets uh, seated. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't see that happen. I think Biden on a lot of issues will be pretty moderate. Uh, I, and again, I think taxes are, are not something he wants to plunge in right away. Right away, Jeremy, what I think he does is number one, he picks up the phone, he calls Macron, Trudeau, Merkel, maybe Putin, maybe Z, Boris Johnson, and tries to get foreign relations a little more stable. Then I think he looks at regulations and undoes a lot of the Trump uh, regulations on emissions and labor standards. Then I think he focuses, maybe at the same time, on a big new stimulus bill if we don't get one Mm -hmm. done uh, now. Really an infrastructure bill that uh, Trump talked about for four years. Yep. Never did. So Uh, I think Biden's priority list would, would put tax hikes uh, you know, in the in the middle of the pack. Maybe by summer, uh, the Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee will start marking up a bill. Yeah. But it'll take a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's go to the the regulations. We, we talked a little bit about taxes. You know, Wall Street. You know, went off and talked about what was you know good for stocks. Um, pointed about taxes and, and the regulations. I, I, I felt that um, that that the taxes was more important. I, the climate regulations is really a mixed bag. It was a crazy situation where the auto industry was arguing you know, more in favor for uh, some of uh, the, the state emissions than what the Trump wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, yeah. What what. What you said undo the regulations? Now you mentioned labor regulations. I'm not familiar. What what regul what labor regulations was enacted in Trump that you think uh, could be undone during a Biden administration? Sure. Well, they're working on one right now. It was a good story in the New York Times last Saturday uh, on a lot of regulations. I highly recommend the article. So they're working on one right now that would allow tr- uh, truck drivers to drive for like, you know, 24 hours without taking a break. I'm not being exact, but there's there's a lot of things that would ease up on that type of uh, regulation. I think emissions also would be big for, you know, petrochemical plants, mm-hmm. uh, autos, a, a wide range of areas. I think they would want to, to toughen that back up again. Yeah. But is it, are those going to be really bite? I mean, the energy sector is just so transformed and so moving in the opposite direction. And, you know, the automakers are, you know, it's going electric and they want to go because that's all what the young people want to do. I mean, is that going to, uh, you know, we could get to fracking later and all that, but is this, is this, do you think that that could really what what could really be a negative on on that front that would really uh, bite into um, firms' profits? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I don't see a huge threat to profitability. The the threat to profitability is on the tax side. If we go yeah. from twenty one percent to twenty eight percent on the corporate rate, obviously that's going to cut into earnings. Yeah. No. No. I think. Yeah. And 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 in fact, I think B B of A and a number of others have talked about a fifteen percent drop in. In the earnings um, uh, that 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 such a tax hike uh, would come, um, is there is, did you know is there anything? I'm trying to think of other Trump deregulations. I mean, I know that you're going to rejoin the climate accord and all that. Does that really matter? You know, in terms of you know what 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 is finally going to happen. Um, uh, uh, on, on the on the labor side, we you talked about uh, you you, t- you talked about f- food. A few. What is there? Anything on right to work, which is a which is a major thing. What else about unions? I guess what was the, uh, 
what is it called, open balloting, or whether mm-hmm. they would have that? Is that something that's a federal? Is that state? Is that there, NLRB? There, where, where there are a few come? things from the regulatory agencies, but I would say maybe the biggest of all would be a reversal on tariffs. Uh, I think that mm-hmm. uh, a, a Biden presidency, I, I don't see Biden going back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership right away because Congress would have to approve it, and a lot of yeah. Democrats are not exactly free trade yeah. right now. But yeah. I think on tariffs, there's, a, there's an opportunity for Trump to send a signal around the world that he will not use that as his you know, default mechanism, and he yeah, may start to ease, ease up the tariffs. Oh, Biden, yeah. Biden will send that. Yeah, that. Biden, oh, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. On, on, the, on the tariffs, I think, which I've always thought has been the worst part of Trump's economic mm-hmm. program, which is actually the, non, the non-Republican Party part of his program. Well, that's right. The, the Republican Party part of Trump's program has been excellent. The non-Republican part of Trump's I, program has been I, terrible. I, um, I don't see a thaw, though, with China. I think that's going to take a while. I think that the Democrats, uh, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer, they're, not, they're in no rush to, to kiss and make up with China. That's, that's going to take a while. Although, do you think uh, there's a kiss and make up? There, there are some uh, that believe, now I don't believe this, and I want, uh, your opinion is important, that uh, everyone thinks that China wants Trump out. Um, some people believe that Biden could lead a more effective multinational mm-hmm. force against the intellectual property theft, et cetera, and so on, um, than you know the sort of chaotic unilateral uh, types of attempts by uh, by Trump. Yep. And, and, and mm-hmm. that 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 uh, some people in China prefer Trump to Biden. I mean. You know, I mean, I don't think either of us know the inner workings of the Chinese Communist Party, but, I mean, what do you think of that thesis? I don't think Trump really cares much about how China treats its dissidents in Hong Kong and elsewhere. I think Biden would. I think Biden would be inclined to impose sanctions if China really cracks down, uh, Mm -hmm. say, against the Muslims in the West or Mm -hmm. people in Hong Kong. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the the Chinese probably have a mixed feeling as to who who they would prefer, and it it might be Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I brought up also the fact of leading a multinational force. In, in terms of intellectual property, which mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think the truth of the the, the the Trump trade propositions were in the intellectual property side, but you would never get that done unilaterally uh, in, in in any case. Um, what 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 po- you know? We've got ten days. Um, do, it's, do you see anything potential in the next? 10 days. I mean, there's always the October surprise, or yeah. what we call the early November surprise, um, uh, that that could happen, that, that might uh, further shift probabilities going forward. I, I think that Trump obviously likes to stir the pot, so there may be more on the Bidens in Ukraine. There may be, uh, there might be another New York Times story on Trump's taxes. There's a rumor there's one more story to come, and that might involve to whom does Trump owe $400 million? Uh, there, yeah, could be a, was, yeah. there could be a health issue. There could be an overt sign of foreign interference. There could be a geopolitical problem. So, yeah, I mean, we've got a long way to go. I mean, who knows what will be in the news tomorrow. Uh, maybe there will be a deal between Pelosi and uh, Mnuchin. So there's, there's a lot more to come. And one other thing, Jeremy, on October 29th, we get the Commerce Department forecast, uh, final first number for the third quarter GDP. And as you know, a lot of people are talking about high 20s, low 30s. Now, we all know it's just a statistical. Yeah, it's just, it's just a bounce back from the exactly. terrible second quarter. But you know Trump will, will portray Oh, yeah, this. he'll blurt it all out, biggest one-quarter increase in yep. history. Yep, absolutely. So that, that could be a factor on the 29th of October. Mm-hmm. If I Even could just, though, uh, as an economist, I'd shrug it away. <laughs> we're, we're running into the bottom uh, half of this, this 
conversation here. I just wanted to get quick bottom lines for the markets from both of you. Greg, any sector recommendations you're saying, how you're thinking about shifting portfolios with all of this uh, you know, election-oriented well, discussion? I, I would say this. If, if Biden wins pretty easily and there's a blue wave, it's not a good story for the defense sector. I think their days of huge increases will level off. Not a good story for fossil fuels. Not a good story for the financial services sector. Uh, and of course, we will start talking about higher taxes. But I think at the same time, we have to recognize that Jerome Powell is prepared to do whatever it takes to keep this economy and the markets in good shape. I think that would negate a lot of negatives that could come with a big Biden victory. Yeah, let me, let me I'm going to follow up on the financial sector. Uh, yeah. You know, I know Elizabeth Warren. I don't know what position she might have. I mean, I, I, I like your opinion on that in the new administration, Biden wins. But, you know, truth of the matter is, this election is not about abuses of the financial sector the way the financial crisis was yep. in any way. Yep. And, and, and in fact, I mean, you know, Dodd-Frank really did a lot of regulate. Now, there was some undoing of a few of the things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the financial... Is, 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 do you think there's a mood to slam the financial sector no. in Congress? No, um, not uh, I, Congress. Yes, the uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez people. Yes, but as far as Elizabeth Warren goes, I think Biden would be counseled by his friends in, in, in Wall Street that, that that would be a provocative move. Yeah. But more importantly, there's a really interesting angle. If the Senate is about tied, and she left her seat to become Treasury Secretary, the Republican governor of Massachusetts would name her replacement, who would be a Republican. That's a major reason why she may have to just stay in Massachusetts. That's a very good point. I did not think about that. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's... Uh... That's although a moderate Republican, right? I mean, that's a still for, Republican, right? For for vote counting, though, if it's fifty-fifty, you know, getting getting one more Republican who will caucus with Republicans would be a, a factor. So I don't think she'll be Treasury Secretary. There's a lot of really bright people, Lael Brannard. Uh, there are a yeah. lot of people who could be in line for Treasury, but I, I'd be surprised if it was her. It would just be too controversial in the markets. Or Jason Furman, who I respect as an yep. academic in. Yep. I don't know if he'd be Secretary of Treasury, head of SCEA. I mean, and there's a lot. There's you know, um, there's a lot of very, there's a lot of very qualified people. This half hour, we'll be talking the antitrust lawsuit that the DOJ uh, brought against Google. I've got two guests on the phone. We have Alex Mozed, founder, CEO of Applico, a platform advisory firm, uh, and Karen Marciscano, who's a senior analyst at Wisdom Tree, also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Uh, Alex, thank you, and Kara, thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets. Great to be here. Um, so uh, we should we should quickly mention, Alex. You know, I we at Wisdom Tree licensed some of your data on platforms for an index. Um, before we get into all of the stuff going on, you wrote a book, Modern Monopolies, very timely conversation on the sort of antitrust suits here on, on calling them monopolies. What's you know maybe give us a, a brief sense why platform companies, and then let's get into the sort of the current events here. Yeah, the, the book was aptly named Modern Monopolies because these platforms have a winner-take-all business model. They have uh, two-sided network effects. They have consumers on one side, producers on the other, otherwise known as many suppliers. Uh, and because these, these two different sides of the ecosystem feed off of each other, the, the natural endpoint is to only have one or two dominant players in a given vertical. And, and now, you know, when you think about the monopoly uh, traditional regulations and, and sort of harming consumers thinking these monopolies are going to raise prices. How does that fit into Google, which basically arguably gives its products away for free? Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the classic trick in the book is they give all their, they give so much free software, free value away to the consumer, to the demand side of the equation. And that's because they create value by facilitating the exchange of value. Uh, so they want as much demand as they can get, which means in the eyes of the consumer, there's all this free stuff. And where platforms take advantage of customers is not the consumer as a customer, it's actually of the supplier as a customer. And that is the big difference, and that is what the DOJ has missed here for years, and the EU has missed it as well for a while. The EU is starting to pick up on this, that platforms actually have two customer groups. A consumer is a customer, but the producer, the supplier is a customer as well. So for Google, 
Those are third-party websites. And who pays Google money? People buying ads. And so when Google crams down other third-party websites from appearing in organic search results, they charge rent to those websites who have to buy ads from Google to appear in the results and stay relevant. They're also sort of being brought up in a lot of the election-oriented news, um, whether it's uh, Google, I, I hear, has been getting involved in some of the local elections. The, Twitter is, 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 is out there on some of the, the political things saying, you know, sort of not making links available to certain news stories. Anything that you think from these recent events that are going to cause new regulations against some of these big tech companies like Twitter and Google? Yeah, and that's where the 230, the Section 230 stuff comes in, where we've now heard, um, actually, Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court just had a 10-page memo where he was saying that they might uh, be looking at kind of uh, diluting some of the power, uh, power of immunity that was given to these tech companies under Section 230. And what that basically means is when people publish, uh, you know, inventory, whether that's content or products or, you know, posts, on these platform uh, ecosystems, the platform is immune from being responsible if there's infringing or inappropriate content there um, to a certain degree. And what we've seen is the platforms are now being very, uh, very liberal in how they regulate uh, what content is made available by taking action and penalizing producers or content creators, right? There's one end of the spectrum, which is taking down posts. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, banning users, shutting down their accounts, shadow banning their posts. And what we've seen is these, these content platforms in particular be much more aggressive in their moderation and, 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 and dancing the line of are they really just a neutral platform or are they now really a kind of content curator and publisher? And what does that mean in the eyes of 230? Uh, I think that's the conversation that's happening. I think it's appropriate uh, with some guardrails, uh, which we can get into. Great. Sure. So, you know, taking a, a step back to the case brought against Google, so the case is essentially arguing that the deals that Google is involved in um, to be the default search en engine is anti-competitive, right? But it seems like the argument isn't nuanced and attuned to that two-sided business model that you talked about at the top of the show. Um, how is Google competing with, you know, not necessarily computer consumers, but with suppliers? And are there specific examples where Google has been anti-competitive against its suppliers? Yeah, so I can tell you the Google General Counsel, the whole team there, they're high-fiving each other right now. They, they're popping champagne. They're very excited about this case the DOJ just brought. And it's actually a huge letdown. I'm very disappointed in Bill Barr um, and the whole team of the DOJ for what they've done. They basically just copycatted what they did 25 years ago to Microsoft. They, they copycatted what the EU did five years ago against Google. EU brought this same case against Google and um, they have now come out and said, you know, we actually kind of messed this up. And the competitive search engines, the CEO of DuckDuckGo just came out and said the, the, the search engine auction system, which is what Google has now implemented in Europe, um, actually doesn't help us. So it's kind of all for naught. We're going to have years and years of, uh, of um, legislation or, or of, of uh, lawsuits back and forth here on this. And then maybe you'll get a few billion dollar settlement and a slap on the back. But they completely missed what you were getting at there, Kara, around um, where does the platform make its money and how does it apply its competitive pressure? And that is against suppliers. So think about websites like Yelp, TripAdvisor, Expedia, Booking.com, and there's, there's countless others. The House Judiciary Committee just a few weeks ago released a report looking at Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook, and how they take advantage of you know, their market power, with, with a lot of emphasis looking at how they take advantage of suppliers. So there are countless testimony here from websites that have said Google is vertically integrating, and they're actually ripping our content. They're competing unfairly against us. If you search for a hotel booking, you know, now, 2020, you have to have three scrolls down on your, on your computer before you see organic listings. 
right, which is rendering Expedia and Booking and all these other uh, third-party websites basically useless unless they pay the, 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 the gatekeeper that is Google Search. This is a great example of vertical integration that is at the expense of the supplier, the third-party website, the producer, and it enriches the platform. And yes, you could say it conversely limits consumer choice, but, but you don't, by, that's a distraction. All you need to say is Expedia and Booking are customers of Google. Google has over 70% market share, clearly, from advertising in, in search. And they're using their market power unfairly to jack up rates and rent and charges and fees on their customers, these third-party websites. And these third-party websites have been very vocal. They can't compete, and it's unfair. Yet the DOJ decided to not even look at any of that, which is what the EU has said their next case will probably look at that. But the DOJ instead tried to play, tried to play it safe here, and they're going to be caught up uh, arguing this thing for years, and it's not going to make any true difference on how Google operates. We're talking with Alex Mosed, who's CEO of Applico, Kara Marciscano, who's a senior officer at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Alex, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that makes these companies so hard is it's not like a lot of other of the major tech companies haven't tried to build search engines to compete with Google. I mean, Microsoft has thrown a lot of money. Uh, Amazon's thrown money. You've had a lot of tried to competitors, but it goes to how you know these algorithms that just keep getting better and better and better with more data that runs through their systems, and it's like hard to then come up with a better algorithm than Google? Is that the sort of natural monopoly nature that you talk about that sort of feeds into why these companies are so strong and tough to compete with? Yeah, you have, you have, uh, you have the chicken and egg problem. You have two-sided network effects, right? As you get more demand, it helps you get more supply, and then more supply helps you get more demand. And now you have a lot of websites that are you know, that are uh, building their websites in such a way that they are giving extra data to Google's search engine crawlers. And just the, you know, Bing from Microsoft is actually what DuckDuckGo is built on top of. DuckDuckGo doesn't have its own search engine. Um, and Bing, I don't think, is, is still isn't profitable. So um, you have a winner-take-all dynamic where you're investing so much to just get to some point of initial critical mass that until you really are that dominant player, particularly in search, <clears throat> you're going to be losing money. There's not room for three or four uh, different search engine businesses, which is kind of like what the DOJ is trying to say. Oh, well, if we prevented Google from using its, its market uh, power to bully its way to be the default search engine, well, then it would open up room to have three or four different search engines. It's just not, it's just not in the realm of reality. They, they just don't understand how these business models work at a fundamental level. Um, and it's it's pretty disappointing to see, frankly. So the the stock of Google hasn't even really reacted negatively this week. It's up six percent, um, which I think signifies, you know, exactly the disappointment you were talking about in the fact that the case just isn't as strong as it could be, and it actually seems to be removing maybe some regulatory risk off the table for. For Google, and I have seen, you know, a few articles saying that if the ultimate outcome of the case is that Google can no longer pay companies like Apple to direct traffic to its search engine, it could actually be a benefit to Google because that's a huge expense for them. What they pay Apple to be the default search engine on the on the Apple iPhone. Just curious if you think that this could actually end up being something good for Google in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. They just they just sidestepped any real threat of antitrust action for the next five plus years. They're going to be bogged down in court. DOJ is going to be focused on this for years. Oh, and by the way, Google knows how to fight this lawsuit better because they've already been through it with the EU. So they now have all the learnings of how to fight this thing a second time around. So whatever mistakes they might have made the first time around, they're not going to make them a second time. So the DOJ has an even harder battle to fight here for even less reward or, or less ability to make to, to actually try to neutralize any anti-competitive behavior by the dominant platform monopoly. And um, it just exposes their, their blatant ignorance around how these business models work. And not only for Google, 
But if I'm Amazon, which I think Amazon actually has the most, Google and Amazon have the most antitrust risk, in my opinion. If I'm Amazon and I see the 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 tack that the DOJ took on Google, I'm also ex- elated at this point. Um, the EU finally has the most, I'd say, educated opinion about this, um, and it's taken them years to hone it, but they've been open with with their thinking on it, and just the DOJ, I guess, doesn't want to uh, to embrace you know some of the feedback their peers across you know across the Atlantic have been saying. In, in other platform news this week, Alex, uh, maybe we come back to the story, but you know it, it seems like other platforms are also. Uh, I, I think I saw some headlines even today on Uber and Lyft, two other you know uh, auto companies or the ride sharing, uh, and you know they they they've been in battles over are there are their employees actually drivers? I think California is coming out and saying you have to reclassify these drivers as employees. Do you see maybe you know that coming a bigger risk to those types of of companies? Um. You know, all of these cases, there's two central gripes of suppliers and producers. One, <laughs> what happens if the platform penalizes me, right? If they kick me off, if they, you know, uh, uh, shadow ban me, if they put my account on probation, right? If I'm an Uber driver and you kick me off, I don't have any forum. I don't have any ability to rebut that or, or tell my side of the story. Similarly, if you're a website and Google you know, demonetizes you, which they've done, um, you don't have any recourse. And, that, and now your whole business is in deep trouble or your whole livelihood if you're an independent driver. I mean, what are you going to do? You've built a profile. You've built a history. So there's no due process or recourse for producers uh, on these large tech monopolies. That's the first gripe. The second gripe is when the platform just raises their rent on you and you can't do anything, right? You're a seller on Amazon. Holiday season is here. They say, instead of 15%, I'm charging you 25. Uh, Google search says, well, I'm not going to put you on the second page of organic listings. You're going to be on the third, and now you've got to buy more ads for me. Um, you have no recourse in that scenario either. And this uh, California AB5 law does absolutely nothing to solve either of those two gripes of Uber drivers. All it really does is help California get more uh, taxes from Uber. And it makes sure that independent contractors don't skirt paying their portion of income tax. And it makes sure that the business is paying that tax directly to the state. And it helps California get more money. But they get to look like they're doing a good thing for the drivers when instead they're actually hurting the independent contractor industry. And they're forcing businesses either out of business or to move to just other states and not operate in California anymore. So it's all just misguided um, you know, I think it's more done for show and, and for their own personal gain that is getting more uh, tax revenue rather than actually saying, what are the problems that these producers have and how can I solve that? Um, and classifying them as, as employees doesn't solve it. Now, one of the last times we had you on the show, we talked about another platform. Well, actually, a company that's often considered a platform, but that you say is not. At Report Earnings this week had some trouble. Uh, sort of Netflix is one of these companies that's in the content space. Uh, talk about your view on Netflix and, uh, and, and its long-term issues. They don't have supply-side network effects. They uh, can have five of some of the biggest companies of the world come not only into their backyard but come right into their business domain in a year and get 60-plus million subscribers. That's Disney+. Plus. Not even to mention what Apple is doing, Amazon, Google, AT&T, Time Warner, HBO, Comcast. These are big companies. And, and, and which one would you rather own, Netflix or YouTube? I'm taking YouTube every day of the week. And so when you look at Netflix's multiples, they could still have a good business. They could still hit their growth numbers. But the question is, do they deserve to have a roughly 2.5x PE multiple than what Disney has? Do they deserve to have such a huge valuation when they actually don't have a moat? Anyone can go and buy supply. That's what Netflix's business is. There's no supply-side network effect. right? You want to compete with YouTube, Vimeo tried this, IAC. Barry Diller understands marketplaces very, very well. They started Tinder. They own Match.com. They own Expedia. They own Angie's List and Handy and home service you know, marketplaces. They could not compete against YouTube because 
to be successful, you need to convince millions of content creators to bring their content to your platform. That is very difficult to do, where instead, uh, when you have these linear streaming, streaming services, it's really who's just going to pay $500 million to go get South Park? And who's going to pay enough money to, to go get anchor content? And then you can go you know, produce your own content around that. There's no supply-side network effect there. And to convince suppliers to come over, you need to get a certain amount of demand. And that is the chicken and egg problem, which makes it so hard for a platform to reach that critical mass and that monopoly power. But when you do reach the monopoly power, it, it affords you the highest profit margins out of any business model and appropriately so, gives you the highest multiple of any business model. Um, Netflix has platform multiples, but no platform business model. And I think the next few years for them are going to be a very different model um, as we look at their competitive positioning. We're in our final minute here, Alex. Uh, you know, a lot of good good topics. If people want to stay in touch with platform views, as you think about I mean, this is one of the big, we think, economic uh, sort of business model type that's very different than the sort of standard model. Uh, how, how can people stay in touch with what you're working on besides your book, Modern Monopolies, to get some background on the platform companies? What are the different things that you're doing um, to talk about these platform companies? Um, my show, Winner Take All, we've got a video podcast, and uh, we've loved to have Kara on there before. And um, we talk about how these large tech monopolies are competing against the, the traditional incumbents on a on a on a regular basis, uh, so it's been great to be here. And um, and then you can also just go see what Plaid is doing. Uh, up now, what over 50% since it launched May of 2019. Uh, these platform businesses are just getting started. And although it seems they couldn't go higher, trust me, COVID is only an accelerant, and they are going to continue to to grow and 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 have very aggressive growth. Yeah, and, and for Wisdom Truth Perspective, Kara does a lot of our work on things like uh, sort of the, the, the platform type companies, cloud computing. She's uh, one of our big experts on uh, on technology. So, thank Kara, thanks for joining us for some commentary to start the show. Alex, always a, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. I always thank our producer, Patty Hall, uh, on the board. We have Dion Simpkins helping managing the show. You can always listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 